This week at Hope Point. If the only restraint that comes to America is external from the government, we lose our freedom. We must learn to be self-governed. There must be some, something within us. Instead of the government having to constantly restrain us, we restrain ourselves. And Franklin said, what could it be? What power could exert upon the human soul? And he discovered in the greatest spiritual awakening of this country, the way that a country is self-governed is when they are governed by God. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, fellow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's Holy Word. Earlier this week, I, I hung three buntings across the front of our porch, our house, and I did so because it's the 4th of July, and I love America. It used to be no big deal to say the words, I am passionately in love with America. It's all of a sudden become a big big deal. Recently, some loud voices, even within the Christian community, says loving America reveals some sort of misplaced trust for a follower of Christ that I should only love God and to say I love America means that somehow I don't love him fully that to show one's love for the country shows a decrease in love for God. So are these voices right? Because they are many and they are growing. As one who is called to God with all of, to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and body, can I love the Lord and can I love the country where I live at the same time? Well, to answer that question, I think I need to make a test with some other things I love. There are other things I love. Is it okay if I love my wife? Is it okay if I love my daughter? Is it okay if I love my grandchild? And is it it okay if I love the smell of Play-Doh? Which I do. Yes, God does not ask me to disown these in order to own him. He just asks and demands that my love for him would be supreme. But after my love for him is supreme, in fact, it is... It would be offensive not to love the very gifts that he gives me because I am loving him by loving his gifts. And I do love his gifts. The book of James chapter one says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights. So to love God is to live in constant gratitude for every gift that comes to us from heaven. That's what it means to love God, to live in gratitude. It's why we start every um, week by reminding you that our mission statement is to applaud God for every molecule, for every providence, including the providence of being born in this country. We say thank you to God. It's our way of of loving Him. So to love somebody is to love them when they give you gifts and to say thank you for the gift. This week, my wife had a special birthday. She turned 60. So I had to tell the neighbors she turned 60. And I went all out and went to Costco and bought her a cake. I don't know of another place where you can get more icing on something baked than Costco and all for $11. So that night when we blew out the candles, she looked at me and she said, thank you for my balloons. 
thank you for my cake. Because she loves me, she thanks me. So to love God is to thank him for the privilege of being born in a country called America. Every Monday and Tuesday night in this church, the building is filled with the buzz of internationals, ranging, I guess, from six countries of the world. A month ago, we were expecting seven dear new folks from Ukraine, and 35 showed up to be helped to learn English or to teach English or to improve living in America using English. And every one of the internationals that I've met through the years at English Crossing, I see Amber Thurston back there, thank you for letting us build on your nine years of work, which is the joy of Christian ministry. You run the race and give a baton to someone else. Thank you, you run well. But English Crossing is booming. And as you talk to these people, and as I've talked to English Crossing through the years, I'm talking to people who were just years ago were just immigrants in the process, now here five years or six years. And they praise God for the freedom to be in this place, a freedom where unending opportunities are available to them and a place where they are free to choose to do whatever they want to do for a career and free to believe whatever they choose to believe in terms of moral and their spiritual direction of their life. And they understand that there are many places around the world that they could have lived and often did live where that freedom was inaccessible to them. So they come and tell God, thank you. Freedom is a glorious thing, a gift that so many people do not have. Freedom of self-expression is what it means to be human. If you are in a place where someone will not allow you because you are you're trapped, you're restricted, you cannot express your humanity, you cannot express your thoughts, your humanity has been taken away. It's what it means to be human, to be able to say, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling, to be free to do that. So we love America for the gift of freedom that God provides through the country. Now, loving America does not mean that I'm blind to its sins. That's why we gather every Sunday. I try to lead us in some type of pastoral prayer where we're crying out to God, where we understand that the majority of this country that has been so blessed by God chooses to elevate the gifts of God to the point that they are idols above the creator himself. And we cry out to the country that it's wrong to trade the gifts and to displace them above the Lord. And we plead with the country to say to them that no country can thrive and no country can survive that does not put God supreme in its country's life. So we, we confess the sins of the nation. They're grievous. It's why we preach every single Sunday with all of my heart or those who preach here with all of my heart begging people to come to Christ to be forgiven while there's still time before you enter an eternity that's Christless, an eternity of an agonizing hell. We're so committed today for you to have the opportunity 
to cry out to God in prayer for the revival of this nation that its heart would turn back to God. We've dedicated the entire fourth song as a prayer that you can participate as Marcy and Brian sing, you can participate in that prayer of that song. So not in the slightest way does loving America mean that I look over its present sins, nor does loving America mean that I look over its past sins. Millions of people in this country right now grieve that there was ever a time in this country where men and women were bought and sold in the United States as slaves. We grieve that. But it is a noble thing that this country so hated that evil that they were willing to dedicate 600,000 lives in the bloody civil war to end that evil. America has a flawed past, but America is far more than just two and a half centuries of flaws. It's far more than that. That's what we've forgotten. Eric Metaxas says it this way, we're stuck in a fault-finding mode and it's killing us. We have decided that every potential hero is too flawed to celebrate. Most of you know that after church last Sunday, a couple hundred of us drove out to Lake Cooley because five people, some of them adults, some of them students, walked into that water professing their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. They acknowledged through their baptism that they believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He left heaven 2,000 years ago, lived on earth as a man for 33 years in a perfect life that he may offer his body on a cross that all of our imperfections and guilt could be, trans, could be absorbed into the body of Christ and he die and be punished instead of us. Because his death on the cross atoned of all sins, He's risen from the dead and has ascended back to heaven as king of kings. They profess that. This man right here that professed that statement of faith, is his name is Ricky. I don't know if you've met Ricky yet. He's t a tough guy. He's a Marine. He's a veteran of, in Af of the war in Afghanistan. And he's a sinner. And he shared his testimony last week of how horrible his life looked prior to Christ the destructive choices that he made, the shameful choices that he made outside of God's plan for his life. And he believed with all of his heart that by walking into the waters of baptism, he was representing the fact that he had walked into the very life of Jesus Christ and Christ had covered his sins with his holiness and his righteousness. And Ricky believed that. And Ricky is forgiven and Ricky is pure because of Christ. He confessed that. Now, how do you think it would go if the next time Ricky shows up, maybe to greet in the parking lot, hold a door, maybe work in the nursery, or be a greeter here? How would it be if every time Ricky tried to serve, we said, whoa, 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 but Ricky, your past is sinful. Every time, every time he tried to do something per, to make progress in the gospel, we were reminded Ricky of his past. 
This is what's happening in America now. Among a few, loud few. But America can never get over its past that every time America does something good, the only thing that's pointed out is America's flaws. Let me ask you about the heroes in your life. Think of somebody right now, you say, this is a hero in my life. Now, I want you to say, here's the qualifications. You cannot have a hero in your life if they have any flaws. How many, how many heroes do you now have in your life if, you, if they cannot have a flawed past? I had the uh, privilege of attending a funeral by way of the web this past week with the funeral for Dan Vognes, his father. Dan runs our community ministry, men's ministry, discipleship. His father died a few weeks ago, Mark, and a lot of people spoke on the web. But I really appreciated his brother, Brett, because Mark was placed in a difficult position 10 years ago when, when uh, Dan's brother Jeremy was involved in an accident that left him paralyzed and, and um, Mark gave his whole attention to caring for his son Jeremy. But in order to care for his son Jeremy, he could not give equal weight anymore to caring for the rest of the family. And so, so Brett stood up and said, I lost my dad some years ago when he had to give all of his attention to my, my brother. He said, but that's okay. I had a great father and he did what he could. There's a story in the Bible about a woman who came to anoint Jesus Christ. Just hours before his death, she broke open an alabaster jar of perfume. And out of love for Jesus, she spilled it over his his hair and washed his feet. And as soon as she did it, everybody began to criticize her. Said, well, that was a year's worth of ointment that could have been sold for the poor. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She did what she could. Mark chapter 14, 8, she did what she could. We'll never get anywhere in a, as a country if rather than looking for the millions of heroic things that men and women, black and white, have done throughout our 270 years together. If all we do is look at flaws instead of what well, they did with the good. That's called grace. That's how God treats you. You come into this place and he doesn't call you on stage and expose your life. Instead, he elevates you and blesses you and allows you to sing and he doesn't shame you because you're forgiven. You know, one of the reasons that America feels like it does right now is because we have violated the spirit of gratitude. Unbelievably negative nation. The Bible says we should be overflowing with praise for God and his blessings. Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, do not forget his benefits. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for his good. His love endures forever. 20 times in this psalm, the Bible says we are to praise the Lord for his loving kindness. So that's what we do on the 4th of July. We praise God for his loving kindness for giving us this nation. How many of you chose to be born here? It was his sovereign choice. So we say, God, thank you for the benefits that I have because you 
caused me to be, live here, to experience the blessings of God and, and not thank the Lord for those blessings is actually blasphemous, is actually blasphemous because those blessings came from no other place other than the Lord. What I want to do today and briefly is just have a little opportunity to tell you the things that we praise God for of why in the world you're here today based on where you started from. It started in 1620. There were a group of Christians living in Holland in the Netherlands. Twelve years prior to that, they were in, they were in England. They were persecuted for their faith. Their leader, William Bradford, describes it like this. These Christians were hunted and persecuted by the government on every side. Some were put in prison. Others had their houses taken from them. They were watched night and day. So they left England, moved to Holland for religious freedom. They stayed there 12 years, and then they boarded a ship, decided in the first week of September of 1620 to sail for the new land of the Americas. They boarded a ship called the Speedwell. It didn't make it too far off the coast of England before they had to return. Then all of them were put on the Mayflower. There were 102 people in total, including 30 crew. It took them two months to arrive in the new world. Along the way, two people died. One of them was a passenger. One of them was a crew. A little baby was born in the two-month journey. They named her Oceanus. The Mayflower arrived in what is now called Cape Cod. It was miserably cold. Those who were on the ship called pilgrims, not by our historical naming of them, that's what they called themselves, we are on a pilgrimage. Half of the pilgrims died because of the conditions of the weather within months of arrival. And it seemed that as soon as the weather broke, the majority opinion, get aboard the Mayflower and go back to England. But something unbelievable happened in the spring of 1621. A local native walked out of the woods named Squanto, who was fluent in English and taught them how to plant corn and squash and taught them how to fish and go after lobster and taught them everything they needed to know to survive. How in the world could these 60 people in dire straits meet a Native American who knew English? Well, that started back in 1608. A man named Captain Hunt, also sailing from England, arrived on the East Coast in what is now Plymouth, Massachusetts. When the sailors left the ship there at Plymouth, they were greeted by a Native American tribe known as the Patuxet. Among them was a 12-year-old boy named Squanto. The Englishmen on that ship in 1608 were filled with greed. So they kidnapped these Native Americans and took them to Spain and sold them, including Squanto. There in Spain, he was rescued. Squanto was rescued by a group of ministers. Their plan was to get him back to his life and his world as soon as they could. They tried in 1612 to take him to London, but there were no ships leaving, so he had to stay there for six more years until 1618. During that time, he worked in the stable of a man named Slaney where he learned the English language. 
Then in 1618, a ship took him back and dropped him off just about the exact place of where he had been kidnapped from one decade earlier. Unfortunately, in the decade since he had left the Americas, his entire tribe had died. Because 10 years earlier, when the Englishmen arrived, they brought diseases that the Native Americans could not combat. So Squanto was alone until these pilgrims arrived and came off their boat in the spring of 1621. And he walked out of the woods, and the only reason they lived is because there was a native there that could speak their language that God had prepared 10 years earlier. Had these pilgrims not survived with Squanto's help, more than likely in 1630, the next large fleet of ships, 11 fleets, the flagship was called the Arbella, and on that flagship was John Withrop, who would eventually become governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They probably would have never sailed had the pilgrims died. The providence of God in the forming of this country is amazing. On board that ship, he preached a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. And on that, in that sermon, he said to those Christians that were coming in 1630, you are called by God to be the light of the world, a light on the world and a city on a hill. And he based it on Matthew chapter five, where Jesus said, you're the light of the world, told his disciples, a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. John Winthrop challenged these people to do what everybody in the world ought to do. No matter where they're living, they understand I have been placed by here to be a light for God. It's not an American thing. It's a God thing. That wherever you are, your goal in life is to reflect the God who has made you and who has blessed you. That phrase, city on a hill, was not invented in recent, by recent politicians, not by Democrats, not by Republicans. It was invented by a politician, John Winthrop, on that, on that ship in 1631. Now, Ronald Reagan did love that phrase, city on a hill. He used it a lot in his speeches. And the last time he used it was January 11th, 1989. His last address to the country, this is what he said. I've spoken of the shining city all of my political life. But I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on the rocks stronger than the oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, a city teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace, a city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors and the doors were open and anyone with the will and the heart to get here that's how I saw it, and that's how I see it still. Every nation in the world should see themselves as this, a city that's blessed by God, and therefore a city that should be a blessing of its blessings. Every nation in the world is commanded by the Lord throughout Scripture, honor the Lord who has blessed you as a nation. Just look at how the Bible says it, Psalm 6, 7. God has blessed us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 3. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. 
Worship the Lord with gladness. Know that the Lord is God. He made us. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations. Praise him all people of the earth. Psalm 150, let every living creature praise the Lord, shout praises to the Lord. And our lovely passage in Revelation 14, I saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel of Christ to proclaim to those living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. It's not an American thing to give God glory for being a nation. It's a God thing. It's a global thing. It's an eternal mandate of all who are living. All nations should see themselves as having a divine mandate to honor God. And when America is at its best, it remembers that. It remembers it's been blessed by God and is accountable to God. Next quote I want to share with you comes from another great leader in the country. And the reason why I'm sharing these quotes Neither Ronald Reagan nor Benjamin Franklin nor the last person I'll share, none of them claim to be born-again Christians. They just claim to believe that America was blessed by a moral creator to whom we were accountable and to whom we should say thank you. None of them just wanted a government that pushed a religion of Christianity. All of them wanted a government that had the decency to acknowledge God. This is what Benjamin Franklin said. He wrote a letter to, in 1787, he wrote a letter to two friends in, in France. In the first paragraph of the letter, he said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. What did he mean by that? He was saying that if the people that are now in the colonies want to remain free, they must align themselves to some ultimate good or they will lose their freedom. That is, if the people in the colonies believe that there is no ultimate good for which they should live, that every man can do what he wants, that freedom means that I can do what I want to whomever I want, the country would no longer be a free place. It would be a fearful place. If you walk down the street today and everybody can do everything they want, what a horribly fearful place that would be. So Ben Franklin said, the only way the freedom will last is if the people attach themselves to some ultimate eternal virtue. Franklin had seen, first, right in front of his eyes, what happened when a country goes wild. 1787, the people became, in the colonies, unrestrained. The Revolutionary War had left a massive debt on the American people, and the government decided to solve it through taxing them. There were a group of people led by a guy named Daniel Shea that said, we will not pay these taxes. 4,000 of them formed a resistance movement, marched against Boston, and planned to take over the new government. The wealthy people of Boston got together their own militia and put down Daniel Shea's rebellion. Had that rebellion not been put down, America probably would have been lost in that very year. 
Because a nation cannot live in anarchy. That led to the development in 1787 where 55 delegates gathered in Independence Hall in Philadelphia and stayed there 100 days till they came out with a 4,200-word document, one of the greatest masterpieces of history called the Constitution, where we are told that the first and greatest role of government is to keep, the, keep its people safe, to keep its people safe. What a joy it was for my wife Myself, several from Hope Point last weekend, a sober joy to stand on our sidewalk outside of um, our neighborhood and to honor the, honor the officer, Austin, who had, been, who had been killed. We stayed there for such a long time as two or 300 police cars, and we were, I was reminded of the Constitution, even as they came by, that the first and greatest role of a of a government is to protect its people. But Benjamin Franklin knew this. If the only restraint that comes to America is external from the government, we lose our freedom. We must learn to be self-governed. There must be some, something within us instead of the government having to constantly restrain us. We restrain ourselves. And Franklin said, what could it be? What power could exert upon the human soul? And he discovered in the greatest spiritual awakening of this country, the way that a country is self-governed is when they are governed by God. That great movement happened in 1740 and 1741 through the greatest preacher in the history of the church outside of the Apostle Paul. His name was George Whitfield. He was British. He crossed the Atlantic seven times to preach here, but it was trip number two in 17, August 14th, 1739 is when he left England. He was already well-known in England, already well-known in the United States. When his ship docked in Philadelphia, 6,000 people, 6,000 were waiting in Philadelphia that morning to hear him preach. The, the nation was out of control morally. No purpose. Everybody living for themselves. And they knew they were out of control. That afternoon, he preached to another group, a different group, 8,000 people. The next Sunday, he preached to 15,000 people. While he was here on trip number two, he traveled 2,000 miles from New York to Charleston. He would preach 350 times in 75 cities. Throughout his life, he would preach 33 years, 18,000 different sermons. The greatest single influence on the formation of America is the preaching of George Whitfield, which caused this country to gel together, to say, we are a country that has been called by God, blessed by God, and we should not live for ourselves. We should live for something greater than ourselves. And they begin to live for the freedom, not of their generation, but the freedom of post-generations following them all came because of a renewed heart through the Great Awakening. George Whitfield was not a perfect preacher. He, um, in his time, he did not advocate for the abolition of slavery. We can only record and surmise in history that it was part of a flawed heart. It was part of the flaw of 
the earth and the country. But he was extraordinarily kind to the black community. Because of George Whitfield's wild, emotional, raw preaching style, he was not allowed to preach inside church buildings. The clergy found him distasteful. No one opened their doors to him, so he preached in the market squares, and he preached on the city outskirts, and he preached to everybody, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, black and white, and he often preached to the black community. John Piper says, more than any other 18th century figure, Whitfield established Christian faith in the slave community, and the slave community grieved his death as much as anybody in in the time in which he died. Let me read to you one of the revivals that took place in Whitfield's ministry because I read this to you to create a taste in your mouth that you would pray that this would happen again and again and again. Our only hope is 10,000 new George Whitfields. This was written by a man named Mr. Cole who was a, a farmer and a carpenter. He lived in Middletown, Connecticut. This was in his diary. Then one morning, all of a sudden, about nine o'clock, there came a messenger that said, Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I dropped my tool. I had in my hand, I ran home through my house and I bade my wife, please go with me to hear Mr. Whitfield preach. I ran into my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him. When we came within a half hour of the road that comes down from Hartford, and to step me down to Middletown, I saw before me a, claw, a cloud or, or fog rising. I thought it was simply the fog that comes from the, the great river, the Connecticut River. But then I heard a noise like thunder. It was, the, it was the thunder of the hoofs of horses. The cloud was from the many thousands of people coming and riding. It made me tremble to see this sight because of how great the world was in a struggle. I turned and looked toward the great river and I saw all the ferry boats running swift across along the 12 miles of the Connecticut, bringing people back and forth. When I saw Mr. Whitfield upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical. It solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Whitfield's primary sermon topic was you must be born again. He had tried in his own life to come to the Lord through works and it was not until he came across John 3.16 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus did he understand not by works, you must be born again by the Spirit of the living God through faith in Christ. We are a people today because of the spiritual revivals that have revived the hearts and the values of this country over and over again. This is what the gospel does. This is why you need to come every Sunday and be a part of community groups and participate in the church and in the community because over and over again, when America was at its worst, God raised up Whitfields and the nation breathed hope again through the preaching of the gospel of Christ.
Benjamin Franklin was not the only person who observed that America's future depended on its looking to God. In 1831, the French government sent two representatives to study what made America work. The French government had just gotten through the French Revolution. It was bloody, as you know. And basically, the only way they were able to restrain their people was through the threat of the guillotine. Not a great way to run a country. Threat. So they sent two men to study the reform system, the, the judicial reform, the prison reform system. How is justice carried out in the country? How, how have we made it? How do, how's the country make it as a self-governing republic? One of the men who, who came was a political thinker and historian named Alexis de Tocqueville. And he wrote a book called Democracy in America. He's not a Christian. He was not born again. He was just an observer from Europe. And this is what he wrote in the book. There is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And there can be no greater proof of, it, of, of its benefit, the gospel's benefit, than that its influence is powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation of the earth. A secular, political, European writer has more wisdom than even those who claim to be religious today in this country. Amazing. You know, we hear, you probably have heard this phrase in our, in our current vernacular, American exceptionalism. Some, it ruffles your, get your feathers all ruffled up. It's not a new word. It's not invented by a Republican, a Democrat, it wasn't invented by Reagan, Obama, Bush, Trump, Biden. It was invented by that French political thinker, Alexis de Tocqueville. He said, my observation of America is that it's exceptional. It has exceptional freedom. It has exceptional resources. It has an exceptional government. It has an exceptional people who have an exceptional devotion to God. He's the one who came up with American exceptionalism. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Never in a million years would I make such a homiletical error and say that this is a verse to America. It's a verse to Israel. But the principle behind it is, to whom much is given, much is required. That's God to Abraham. That's Jesus to us in the Gospels. And the reason why we want America to turn to God and to return to its strength is that when America is at its best, it's always been the singular, greatest, most generous nation to all the world with not even a second place. America has always been first, 
to help people within its borders that are struggling and those outside on foreign soil that are struggling. It's been America that has gone there first. It's been America that's gone there the greatest because of the values of looking at a God who gives. We get the values that we too should be a people who give. If there's any one place where we want to excel, it's that we would be the kind of people that are described on that bronze statue, the Statue of Liberty in New York City, when Emma Lazarus penned these words. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch. Her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. One of the main reasons we long to be strong as a nation is that we would have the passion and the compassion to extend help to the weak here and to the weak around the world. But that will only come when we return to the God from whom all blessings flow. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.